And again? I was having a, a brief meeting with a pastor, fellow pastor this week, and we were talking about, you know, church. I'm really echoey here, at least I think. I sound echoey to me. It could just be what's going on in my own head. <laughs> my bone transmitted noise. Are we better now? Good? All right. And we were talking about, uh, you know, contemplating the idea of churches kind of coming back together, a lot of churches coming back together. And uh, how, you know, when that's normal, it, you don't really recognize the value of it and how unique and special it is, you know, when we're actually all together in person. And I realize there are still certain people who are in a place where they can't do that. You know, it's still tough and difficult. But there's really just... Um, it made me think of, you know, when we went to weekly communion and people would say, oh, if you do weekly communion, it's going to lose how special it is if you do it every week. And I'm, I remember thinking, I, I guess that could be true, but I also felt like, you know, we're going to do it monthly or quarterly. And I started comparing that to how often I tell my wife I love her because I decided I'm going to tell my wife quarterly <laughs> that, I, that I love her. But it doesn't really matter if you do it daily or quarterly if you're not actually loving her, Right. And so what makes it actually real is the fact that as you participate, it's something that's, that's magnificent. And uh, what we found was that when we started going weekly, when for some reason we couldn't do it, it was greatly missed as if this is part of worship and we should do this. So it was almost just the opposite. And I feel the same way about us gathering together. I feel like, you know, and, and historically I've been doing this for a long time and you kind of take it for granted. You show up, everybody's here, you do the service until that's taken away from you for a little bit. And then all of a sudden, everybody's back. And there's just something really unique and, and beautiful about that. So it's really enjoyable to see. Uh, and I know not everybody, again, can, can be here, but we, having the majority here is, is quite nice. All right, we're in uh, the Revelation. We're in part eight. We're finishing up chapter one today. So we're going to look at verses uh, 13 through 20. I named this sermon the glorified Savior. There was a typo that went out. It said the gloried Savior, but it's the glorified Savior. So but before we read the text, let me just kind of, let's get a running start at this text. Because by all observable standards, John, who's writing this, probably the Apostle John, is simply in a miserable condition. Let's just kind of make sure we understand kind of the, the context of the writing of this Letter Due to his faith in Christ, due to his inclusion in the kingdom of God, he, along with the churches to whom he is writing, they are in the tribulation. They are in the tribulation. And it's not just a tribulation, it is a very cataclysmic tribulation that they're going through at this time. And he's writing from this rocky island off the coast of Asia Minor called Patmos, Asia Minor then, it would be about Turkey now. And that island was designed for political prisoners, especially those who would not bow the knee to Caesar. So you've got the Roman Empire in charge, you've got Caesar, who was just a monster, uh, Nero Caesar, in charge. And uh, if, you, if you declared that there was a king above all kings, you were going to find yourself on this rocky island off of the coast of Asia Minor. And not only that, John was surrounded not only by the political oppression of Caesar, but the religious condition was also 
dismal. It wasn't like he was going to be able to find a church very easily of people who were faithfully walking the walk. Much of the Old Covenant church had become, as we'll see, synagogues of Satan. So the people of God who were called to proclaim the message of God, they themselves had moved in a negative direction and gone off the rails. And even the true churches that we'll get to in our next meeting, because chapters 2 and 3 are letters to specific churches, many of those were on the verge of collapse. So he's writing in a very difficult environment. So in the spirit, he hears a voice telling him to write to those churches. He then has his first vision, and he sees the lampstands. And the lampstands, we are told, clearly are the churches themselves. And then he sees what I would argue to be an example of what Jesus meant when he said in the Great Commission, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I think John is seeing kind of a, an, a, a, an archetype example, a vivid example of what that actually looks like, that Jesus is with us, even to the end of the age. So he sees the lampstands, and now we're going to read what he sees or really who he sees in the midst of the lampstand, in the midst of the churches. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, we're reading in Romans or Revelation 1.13, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would cultivate in our heart a proper understanding of the majesty of the glorified Christ. We know we will fall short, but may it be a quest in our minds, in our hearts, to recognize that the Savior of our souls is a magnificent God. Elevate, Father, our understanding of Christ. What could be more precious in our minds than to know the greatness of in the august nature of our living Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the author of Hebrews compares our lives to a race. And he, and he counsels regarding this race that we lay aside things that are heavy. We lay aside things that trip us up. Clearly, these are metaphors for sin and temptation. 
And then he tells us to do something else. He says, fixing your eyes upon Jesus. So run this race, get rid of the things that weigh you down and trip you up. And then he says, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Well, what he then does is list attributes of Jesus that we should seek to imitate. So it would appear, anyway, that the fixing of our eyes upon Jesus, at least in that passage, would have more of us trusting him, imitating his behavior, than somehow forming an image of him in our minds. Right? When you fix your eyes on something, you look at it, you see what it looks like. That's not exactly what that means when he says that. Nonetheless, I think it is very difficult for us when thinking about Jesus to avoid allowing our minds to drift through the tome of art dedicated to what people have imagined and artfully rendered their opinion of what he must have looked like. If I were to tell any of you, fix your eyes about Jesus, or right now if I were to say, think about Jesus, I'm guessing your mind would go to some artful rendering of the Jesus that you've seen numerous times. Now, we tend to gravitate toward images of Jesus that we think we need at a given moment. That's the Jesus I want to think of. The most dominant images of Jesus are the very tender, understanding, and almost pacifistic Jesus who is very sensitive to my failures, gently letting me know that it's going to be okay. That's the very popular image of Jesus in our culture. Other, another very dominant historically image of Jesus is the crucified Jesus, the Jesus on the crucifix. Now, I think the first one I mentioned, I think there's a place for that. I think there's a place for kind of going, I, I really need to focus on the Jesus who's letting me know it's going to be okay. I don't think there's anything, at least in theory, wrong with that. I mean, how many times do we see Jesus tell his followers, fear not, I have overcome the world, and so forth. I don't necessarily feel that way about our image of the crucified Jesus. I remember reading a paper, I wish I had the copy of it, where a historian taught that in the cultures that were dominated by a religion that has the crucified Christ as the predominant image, that those churches and those cultures tended to remain in a state of poverty and oppression. And he made the argument based upon the fact that the Jesus you're thinking about, the Jesus that you have an image of, is dead. He's dead on the cross. He's not the victorious Jesus. He's not the risen Savior. He's the Jesus who's still on the cross. Well, whether that's true or not, I can't say for certain. Either way, we need to recognize that images can be very influential. Now, time doesn't allow a deep study on how images of Christ, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, are a violation of the second commandment, providentially, the questions we had in the Heidelberg Catechism today address that very thing. That wasn't really a plan. We're just kind of, that's where we're at in the Heidelberg uh, question and answer liturgy. But I'm going to tell you this. It is worth noting that the passage that we just read this morning is the only passage in the New Testament 
where we see anything that resembles a description of Jesus. We don't see a description of Jesus anywhere in the New Testament other than the one that I just read to you. Now, I am not, therefore, recommending that we begin making images of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. Notice the phrase, I saw one like the Son of Man. This came up in our Q&A a few weeks ago. And that one like the Son of Man gives us a little distance, our separation between the description of Jesus as his person and the description of Jesus in terms of his glory. All this to say, as one of my fellow pastors who I interacted with on this, Pastor Joel Ellis observes, while the person that we just described is Christ, the description of his glory reflected in symbolic features and garments is not his person. These are things that are used as a tool to help us understand. So Jesus, right now, I'm going to tell you, does not look like what I just described in Revelation 20 or Revelation chapter 1. Jesus, right this very minute, looks the way he looked when he was resurrected. He looks the way he looked when he is ascended. He is eternally in that state of a person, of a human. So in glory, when we see Jesus, he will look like the Jesus who was walking on the Sea of Galilee. He will not look like this Jesus. This description that John is giving is pedagogical. It's designed to teach us something about the attributes of Christ, not for us to form an image of him in our head. Hopefully, having cleared that, what I'm going to suggest is that John is writing about how he, and really actually God, wants his readers to think of Jesus especially in light of the fiery furnace that they were enduring. They are going through great affliction. And what we're going to see is many references back to this chapter, many references back to this description of Jesus as they're seeking to navigate through the oppression and persecution that they're going through. We'll see this in all the seven letters of the seven churches. There's going to be a reference back to some attribute that we just read of, So when we go through whatever we're going through, we should never forget the kind of description that John is giving of who our Savior actually is. It is not the Jesus on the crucifix. It is not the docile, interpersonal, there-there Jesus. It is a Jesus who, at the conclusion of John's encounter, left John falling at his feet as dead. That's John's response. The same apostle who leaned upon the bosom of Christ at the Last Supper had quite a different response to that same Savior having seen this vision. Well, sermon after sermon could be written on every single attribute which John gives in this vision. Almost an identical vision, by the way, is given in Daniel Chapter 10, verses 4 through 19, we're not going to get into that, but we see that anticipated in the Old Testament. But what I want to do here is I want to go through this pretty rapidly, because I don't want us to lose the big picture. Even though we could talk about the sword, and we could talk about the eyes, and we could talk in detail about those things, but we're going to go go uh, through those things pretty rapidly. Remember, John sees... 
this vision of Jesus in the midst of the seven lampstands. I can't emphasize that enough. These are the seven churches. There is some unique presence of Christ in his church. These are seven churches. I think this should solidify in our minds and our hearts the critical nature of the local visible church. This is not, he's, the, the target market here in terms of the audience is not the invisible church. They are seven visible churches that Jesus is tabernacling in. He is, Jesus is here in this church in a very unique and special way. We have not invited him. He has invited us. This is not our house. It is his house that he's invited us to. And, he, you know, the Bible says he inhabits the praises of his people. So he's here participating in such a way that is quite magnificent. And I think we lose that. He is with his church in this consecrated way. And then we read that he is clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest. Now, John, as one who would have been raised in the old covenant, would immediately recognize this as the full expression of the priesthood. And again, we could talk a lot about that, but if you look in your Old Testament, the priest had to dress a certain way. There, was, there were certain things they had to do in order for them to represent the people before God. And when John sees Christ, before, before we get into the intensity, and these things are very intense, John opens with a description of someone who is our advocate. This, the priest, just so you know, the, the difference between a prophet and a priest is the prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. The priest approaches God on behalf of the people. We have a priest who approaches the Father on our behalf. We need a priest. And, and if you're a believer... You have a priest. And let me add this. You don't need another priest. There's one priest you need, and God has provided him in his son. I think it's a big mistake for people in the ministry today to be called priests. Jesus was the archetype priest. And he is, he is strikingly different as priest. Unlike all the other priests before him, his hair and his head are white, white as snow. Now you're looking at that going, well, what does that designate? This idea that this description of Jesus has his hair and his head white, white as wool, white as snow. Well, it's, it's a strikingly similar description that we see in Daniel chapter 7 of the Ancient of Days. What we recognize is that you see Jesus was one of us but he is also one with the Father. He is truly man, but he is truly God. And we don't want to approach the revelation having forgotten who our Savior is. He can't, just, he can't be reduced to simply a man, nor is he a God who's out there. He's both. And we have an advocate who is Christ. The whiteness denotes infinite wisdom, Maturity, purity, and goodness. He is the all-sufficient priest. His eyes, we read, are like a flame of fire. 
That should yield, I think, in our hearts, kind of both fear and comfort. The, the all-searching um, omniscience that he, he knows all. all. Omniscience means all-knowing. That's what we're getting with these eyes. I mean, I think of when Peter denied Christ three times, and one of the Gospels indicate that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. What do, you, what do you think that must have felt like? This idea that I'm known. Somebody knows me. Again and again, what we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus talking to the church, and even though it was written to those seven churches, I think it applies to all churches, and what he says over and over again is, I know your works. I know what's going on in your church. I don't know about you, but to be known so well can be a scary thing. I mean, in the back of my mind, you know, if somebody said, Pastor Paul, what are your top ten fears? Somewhere on that list would be to be found out. You know, for somebody to really know the real me, to know what's really going on. Yet at the same time, there's something glorious and healing about being known. There are things I think we all have that we wouldn't tell our best friend because we are afraid that they might ostracize us. I don't want you to know that about me. Yet at the same time, it's, somebody that we might tell, it's something we might tell our counselor, our therapist, right? When you sit down, or, or your pastor. You sit down and you go, okay, this is confidential, right? Because nobody knows this. Yeah, it's just between you and me. There's something very healing about that as well. And we have that with our Savior. You have searched me. You have known me. You scrutinize my path, we read in Psalm 39. Before there is a thought, you know it all. He, friends, he will heal us or he will judge us. I mean, we see the same thing in John talking about the light. Jesus says, you know, they avoid the light because the light exposes their deeds. Yet at the same time, those who come to the light will find healing. You, you might as well forget trying to hide from the searching flame of a fire eyes of Jesus, your darkest moment, for he knows it all. And yet still beckons you to come forward. Come to the throne of grace. And I pray that every single person in this room, every person hearing this, will come to the throne of grace. Recognizing God knows what's going on in your heart. We have no distant Savior. He talks now about brass feet, which really denotes magnificent strength. I don't know how much you felt you needed you need to hear that, but I tell you what, these seven churches, they needed to hear it, that we have a Savior who is strong. He is not a feeble Savior. Don't mistake that word meek for feeble. That word, we, you know, meek, blessed are the meek, really means power under control. It's a word they used to describe, used to describe a wild horse that was now under control. So it's not feeble. We have no feeble Savior. His feet are like brass. And then he goes on and adds that his voice as the sound of many waters. I remember when I was in high school, a group of my buddies and I went to the wedge in Newport Beach to body surf. And um, I don't know if, if you guys have heard of this place. 
But I had never been there, and I got out of the car. We had to park about a block or two up, and I'm about literally a block away, and I can hear and feel the waves pounding. It's on the because it's kind of shore break, you know. It's like, and you know, I mean, I'm thinking, what have we gotten ourselves into? And one guy went home with a brace around his neck. It wasn't we. So the power of the ocean. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Waimea when the waves are breaking. The power of the ocean. And let me tell you, what we have here makes that look like a mere drip. The voice of many waters. Of course, we have two things here, right? Brass feet and the voice of many waters. But the voice, unlike the feet, is actually saying something. This is not mindless power like the golden calf. You know, J.I. Packer makes the point that when the Israelites built that golden calf, they weren't trying to create some new God. It was a false view of the true God. They wanted a golden calf. They wanted an animal, a strong, mindless animal who will do what they want him to do. They didn't want a smart God. They didn't want a moral God. They just wanted a powerful God. And so we see in this image of Jesus, he has brass feet, but he's also saying something. There are words to be spoken. You know, oftentimes when we're going through the Gospels, we'll read that Jesus taught as one with authority, right? He didn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. He spoke as one with authority. But even then, when Jesus spoke as one with authority, some people managed to ignore him. But what we're seeing in John's vision, nobody will be able to ignore the Christ who has brass feet and has a voice with the sound of many waters. There's no ignoring that. That will be something you either embrace or you, again, will be judged by. Now, before John goes on, with the garments and the appearance of Jesus. He almost parenthetically, it's not obvious, but I think it's, it is in fact the case. He calls us to notice what's in the right hand of Jesus. The right hand denotes in the Bible power and authority. There's something unique about the right hand. Well, what's in the right hand of Jesus? Seven stars. And then we're told later in verse 20 that those seven stars are seven angels. Um, So now it gets tricky because people are like, well, what are the stars? And I'm, by the way, I'm still working on who's who in Revelation and what's what, and we'll get to that and to make this clear. But here you almost have two problems, right? Because you're kind of going, well, well, who are the stars? Oh, they're the angels. But then you have the next question, well, who are the angels? So you got kind of a, you know, a double thing going on there. But I think that they are stars and angels for a couple of reasons. Because as angels, they're messengers, which is what that word means. And as stars, they're light bearers. So they are messengers bringing light. Now, for a variety of reasons we can't enter into now, it is generally held that these angels are the pastors of the churches. Because as I said, the word angel simply means messenger. And there's a very good argument. And it's, I wouldn't say it's unanimously agreed, but it's for sure the majority report that people hold, whatever their views are, that the angels are likely the pastors of these churches. But we then move from the pastors of the churches to the source 
of the message that these messengers are to bring, which is found in the next portion of the vision. So you've got these messengers, and then related to the messengers, because what are they supposed to bring? What's the message? Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, that's not hard to figure out in your Bibles what a two-edged sword is. We're told very clearly that the sword is the word of God. We see that in Hebrews 4.12, Ephesians 6.17. The sword is the word of God. And the angels, the messengers, the pastors, those who are to bring the evangel, are commissioned to deliver the word of God by one who, and I quote, whose countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So you get this image. You've got, you've got God whose countenance is like the sun shining in its strength, who has messengers, and what those messengers are to bring is the word of God. This is something that is, is critical for the church. This is a non-negotiable for the church. Now, it's not lost on me that I, as the pastor, get to be the angel in this drama. I'm sure some of you are thinking that. <laughs> and some people may chide me. Isn't it convenient, Pastor Paul, that you're the angel? <laughs> Somebody who knows me really well might make this statement. I know Pastor Paul, and believe me, he's no angel. Of course, that would be an equivocation with the word, because as I said, the word simply means messenger, right? We tend to think of, you know, angelic in terms of, of good. Here, it's, it's a messenger. At the same time, I think that I, and I think all pastors, should fearfully execute their task. I think the idea that I'm being held in the right hand of Christ, and I've been commissioned by God to deliver a message is not something that should be taken casually. And nor should the pulpit be a place for a pastor merely to render a cultural outlook to give you kind of what I think psychologically through my understanding of Freud or somebody else, what's going on. I am too, whoever's up here, is to ever go into the sword and seek to deliver the message found in the Word of God. Fearfully. Understanding that we're handling something much greater than ourselves. I mean, that was the, I think of that because it was a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was sick for a while and he couldn't preach and they had other people preaching, but he was well enough to go to church but too sick to preach. And he was one of the most famous pastors, you know, in the 20th century, and um, obviously very well known, and you'd be nervous to preach and have him sitting in the front row. And then finally, when he got well, and they asked him, well, what, what did you think about how everybody did in your absence? And he gave an answer along these lines. He goes, you know what, I could forgive somebody if they didn't quite get the text right, or if they didn't exegete, exegete it perfectly and draw the conclusions I would have drawn, and on and on and on. He goes, but... What I can't forgive, or what is very critical to me, is whoever's in the pulpit is recognizing that they are handling something much greater than themselves. This idea that the Word of God is, in fact, it is the Holy Bible. 
and, and is not just kind of another piece of literature. Well, I think people, myself included, should take a deep breath before offering opinions on God. We so casually offer opinions on God. I think God would do this, and I think God would do that. You know, the God in whom I believe, which is usually followed by some heresy, the God in whom I believe would do this. And I'm like, well, that, you're just making God up. It should ever come from the Word of God. I remember we visited a church in Italy, and it had a painting of angels, which, by the way, would be allowable based upon our what we just learned in the Heidelberg Catechism. A painting of angels up in the upper corner behind the pulpit. And these angels are looking toward the pulpit and they have a book and a quill, you know, like a pen with a feather coming out of it. As if to record every single word out of the pastor's mouth. That's the image that they were trying to convey in this cathedral. There's a pulpit and there's angels. And they're looking at the pulpit and they've got their pens out. And they're about to write. And then after I saw that, I ran into this quote that I'm going to share with you because it has had a massive effect upon at least my understanding of the preaching pulpit ministry. His throne is the pulpit He stands in Christ's stead. His message is the word of God. Around him are immortal souls. The Savior unseen is beside him. The Holy Spirit broods over the congregation. Angels gaze upon the scene, and heaven and hell await the issue. What associations and what vast responsibility. Anybody who steps into a pulpit, I think, should read that and recognize the weight Know this, the, uh, the most vehement diatribes in all of the Bible are aimed toward those who misrepresent who God is. All right, now we move into John's response. John sees this, and what happens? You know, I mentioned before, you know, John was the one who rested on the bosom of Christ during the Last Supper. He is also the one who heard and recorded these words by Jesus. I no longer call you slaves, but friends. Right? And I always pointed out this many times, and I'll point it out again. Even though Jesus says that to them, even though he says, I no longer call you slaves, but friends, they never refer to themselves that way in their relationship with Jesus. Paul never says, Paul, a friend of Jesus, when he writes an epistle, right? It's Paul, a slave of Jesus. Paul in chains for Jesus and so forth. So even though it's a magnificent condescending statement on the part of Christ, condescending in a good way, it wasn't as if they were like going, oh, I guess we're contemporaries in every conceivable way. This apostle who heard Jesus say that and recorded it, when he had the vision of the glorified Christ, fell as if dead at his feet. Friends, And I think this is a critical problem in the church today. We should never, ever enjoy the intimacy and the imminence. That word imminence means, you know, the the God who is here, the God who is among us. We should never enjoy the intimacy and the imminence of God at the expense of the glory and the transcendence of God, the God who is out there. We aren't to dismiss that God Because we like this God. We like the God who is here. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, it's summed up so 
quickly when Jesus is asked how to pray. And he says, pray this way. Our Father, intimacy, who art in heaven, transcendent. I mean, we don't, I don't think we realize how the vast difference between those, those little phrases within the one phrase. Our Father. It's an intimate relationship. Who art in heaven, out there. We need to have both of those. And I think John is writing this, and God has given John this vision, because the church had lost that. They had lost the power and the glory of the risen Christ. Now, I'm guessing most of us in this room have never been so afraid of anything that we, have, we fell as dead. I don't know if that's happened to you. The closest I ever came was when I jumped out of an airplane one time, because if you know me, you know I'm, afraid of, I'm almost afraid of being on the pulpit up here. I have this weird fear of heights. Somebody told me, and they were wrong, that if I jumped out of an airplane, it would go away. It's still there. I was so scared, I couldn't understand English. I mean, literally, they're talking to me in English, and I'm like, I can't understand. But I didn't fall as dead. You know, I wasn't that afraid. And I don't think many of us have ever had that experience. There are things that we have a little bit of fear over, and I think we're comforted with a little bit of a solution. In other words, if I'm afraid I have a cold, I'm comforted with some chicken soup, because not that big of a deal. But John had no answer for this level of fear. It wasn't as if he's going to be able to navigate through this on his own. Truly, and I think it's the glorious words in this hymn, when Newton wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. What a a healthy notion of your own sin before God, the glory of God, and at the same time, the grace of God. How precious, he writes, did that grace appear that hour I first believed. And I pray to God that every one of you have that experience, that every one of you know the fear of God and every one of you know the peace of God, and they all come from God. Jesus laid his right hand, and again, that right hand is the hand of power and authority on John saying, don't be afraid. Now, these are no empty words, don't be afraid. So often we might say that to each other, you know, don't worry, it's going to be okay. I might say that to you, it might be okay. Well, how do I know it's going to be okay? I don't know if it's going to be okay. I say that because I'm trying to be encouraging, but, you know, my, I don't have the level of credibility or power or authority to make sure it's going to be all right. okay. I might say to you it's going to be okay, and it's not going to be okay. But when Jesus says it's going to be okay, when Jesus says do not fear, you have good reason not to fear. He can carry what needs to happen in order for those words to actually mean something. How? And he actually begins to explain here why and how he can say that. He gives kind of a for. Don't be afraid for. For I am the first and the last. Let me tell you, this is an undeniable reference to the deity of Christ, the Godhood of Christ. I don't I don't understand, you know, there are cults that don't believe that Jesus is truly God. How do you get through a verse like this? There is no way It is almost interchangeable within the very chapter, but if you go into Isaiah 44, Isaiah 46, if you go into Revelation 21, 22, this idea of Alpha and Omega, first and last, it is undeniably referring to God. And Jesus here is either a false teacher, 
or he is in fact who he says he is. I am the first and the last because God is saying, don't be afraid. At the same time, the Christian's comfort is not built entirely upon the notion that there is a true God in heaven. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't just go, hey, I'm God. Things are going to be fine. It is that the true God prepared a body for his son that he might conquer death on our behalf. See, Jesus goes on further, right? He says, I live. I was dead. And now I'm alive. And I'm alive forevermore. Well, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the resurrection. It's the resurrection. Friends, you need to know something. Our most inevitable and formidable opponent, he talks about it, is death in Hades. What is that? Well, it's death, dying, and Hades, the place of the dead. And he's saying, I have the keys to both. I'm in charge, not of just what happens in this world. I'm in charge of what happens forever. I mean, it's the same Jesus who in Matthew 10, 28, said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Friends, the basis of the foundation, you know, where Jesus is going when he says, let me, let me explain to you why I can say don't be afraid. is because he was dead and now he lives. And he will live forevermore. Now, I've already stated this, not in this sermon, but many times, that the theme of Revelation is the triumph of Christ over all evil. That's a theme. That's kind of what you, you, you read the Revelation and go, okay, if I were to sum up what it's about, it is the triumph of Christ or the Christian faith over all opposition or over all evil. But let me just tell you this, so we don't lose in our study of eschatology the heart of the matter. Every ounce of that victory over every ounce of that evil is contingent upon and dependent upon the resurrection. That is the great victory. The sermon must go to the resurrection. When we do the Lord's Supper today, it is the resurrection. That there is one who has conquered death on our behalf. Finally, the chapter ends in these last couple of verses. Some people think these last couple of verses should be the first couple of verses in chapter 2. With John, he gives us an outline of the entire book. John is to write what he has already seen, which is what we just talked about, the glorified Christ. Then he's to write the things which are, which is what's going on in chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches. they got stuff going. He's kind of like, okay, you've, already, you've seen this glorified vision. Okay, that's the past. What's going on now is these seven churches got a lot of issues. Write to them, chapters 2 and 3. And then the things which must take place after this, which is the rest of the revelation from chapter 4 on. Let it not escape our notice that there is a ministerial target in the revelation. Like, these are not words written at random, really, for general consumption of humanity. There is a target. John is writing to somebody. 
he is writing to the church. This is written for the lampstands, for our benefit as a church. And remember, the church is the lampstand, not the lamp. Christ is the light. We're just to hold him up. We are to herald him. We are to lift him up that he might draw all men to himself. That's the, that's the commission given to those angels. To the angel of the church, write. It, it really ends up being something like this. You know, from him who has a sword coming out of his mouth to the angel, tell the pastor to tell the church this. The church needs to hear this. What we're looking at here, you need to hear. You are the target market for the revelation. Though Christ is truly the head of all things, the church is his body, and it is to the church primarily that he is given. We read in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know, I'm often asked, and we wonder why certain cultures, ours would be a good example, takes a turn for the worse. Why, why do we seem to be going off the rails? What's the starting point in terms of the demise of the West, or, or however you want to put it? I am firmly convinced it is due to what is or is not happening in the pulpit of the churches. That's the starting place. If the church will not repent, if the church will not judge itself, as Paul puts it, what hope is there in the culture? You think the culture is going to figure it out apart from Christians who've been illuminated by the Spirit of God to the truth of God's Word? Let me tell you where the world goes apart from the gospel. I don't even have to tell you. You can open your Bibles and turn to Genesis 4 and 5 and 6. And you see where the world goes when there's wholesale rejection of the preaching of Noah. It goes not only to the judgment of God, but to the abject judgment of God. There is no hope for the world apart from the word being preached and people by the grace of God believing what is being taught about the grace of God. Well, friends, the image, at least of late, I think prevailing in our culture is nothing like the vision that John is calling his readers to worship and to trust. We, I don't think this, I mean, we, we just take this, we push it into the future somewhere, we just kind of fantasize about it. But this is the Christ that John is calling his readers to meditate upon, to be motivated by, to imitate, to be strengthened by. The truth of God's word is so often compromised in our culture and sometimes altogether supplanted. It's, you, know, I, I just, you know, people talk to me and I, I'll, they'll visit a church and they'll be like, yeah, they actually never even opened the Bible. Or they did, but it was just kind of like a wink to a verse. And they got to that verse and they thought, okay, that's, the Bible's contributed its portion. Now I'm going to go to you know, Reader's Digest or I don't know where they're going to get their stuff. Reader's Digest was a magazine back in the old days. <laughs> and the aim of heralding the glory of Christ, of whom we just read, 
has become outdated and archaic. It's like, okay, you know, what do you guys talk about in church today? Well, we talk about how, what a big deal Jesus is. Like, oh, really? So nothing really you can apply. I don't know. I was convicted one time when somebody gave a sermon that really didn't have the normal application that we would have. Like, okay, now, now do this. Go do, go do this thing, right? Which I think is fine. Sermons should have that. And I was a little critical, and I was sitting among pastors, and I, unlike me, voiced my criticism. And I'm like, well, what's the application? And this younger pastor looked at me, and he goes, the application is the worship of God. And even now I'm feeling myself, I'm feeling shame, you know. These seven churches, they will continually be reminded of these attributes as we go through the letters to them. And they are to think of Christ this way in order for them to be encouraged to stay the course. And I think that we should take heed. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that even as we've prayed before, that you would lift up in our minds the glory of the risen Savior. Lord Jesus, we do pray that we would understand more fully who you are, all power and authority. We thank you with this passage that we begin to have kind of some type of palpable perception of what that power and authority looks like to the best of our ability to comprehend these types of things. And we pray that it would continue, Father, to be elevated all the course of our lives. And we do pray that we would never yield to the ways of the world and the influences of the flesh when it comes especially to the worship of the living God. And we pray in the precious name of the risen Savior. Amen.